The year was 1982. It was the summer. I was 17 years old. I sat at the back of a church this size on a Sunday evening, and God spoke to my heart with a verse of scripture from Psalm 48 and verse 12, which says this, For this God is our God forever and ever, and he will be our guide even until death. Those words gripped my heart in a way that nothing else had done ever ever done before. And before I knew it, I was on my feet. I was sitting maybe with the lady in the, is that fuchsia or pink? I don't know. I'm not a color person at all, but maybe in her direction, got up and walked all the way to the front of the church and knelt at the altar. And I gave my heart to Jesus Christ, 17 years old. About uh, 16 years later in the spring, God again spoke to my heart. By then, I had been married, and we had two young children, and both of us were working in the human services field and doing quite well. We had just constructed our own home. Uh, we were doing well. And in the middle of all of that, I heard God again begin to nudge my heart, as he had been doing for quite a while, suggesting that I should consider becoming a full-time pastor. And I had fought it and fought it and fought it with all kinds of excuses until that day in 1998 when God said to me, again from the book of Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 15, and I will give you pastors after my own heart who will feed my people with wisdom and knowledge. And the moment that I saw the word pastors was the moment I knew that God was confirming in my spirit that he had in fact called me into full-time ministry. All that to say that when you're in God's hands and when you're in God's will, he directs your life and whatever transpires is his doing. Let's take a moment again to pray. God, this is a sacred hour. It is your hour. It is your time. We give ourselves to you. We ask God that your Holy Spirit would dwell in this moment that you'd use me for your honor and glory to bring forth your word in a way that touches people, challenges them, blesses them, and points them to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You have met my family already. This is my wife, Randy. We have been married for 28 years. It will be 29 in December on December 22nd. And our firstborn is here, Abena, with her husband, Jason, our son, Lije, is still in Lynchburg, Virginia, working and attending school at the same time, so he's not here with us. Uh, but we are delighted to be with you. Uh, we're delighted to finally meet you. I certainly give honor uh, to Lynn for his leadership and to both he and his wife for their hospitality. We've been in their home and we've been treated like royalty. And uh, we truly uh, appreciate their generosity and their hospitality. I've gotten to meet several of you already, and I'm thrilled by what God is doing here. One of the words that I, I keep hearing, uh, uh, keep, one of the words that keeps recurring is the word family, that you do see yourselves as a family, and God indeed is honoring that. Well, from watching the kids show, kids say the darndest things, as well as from having children of your own, you know that kids have this knack of coming up with the funniest of lines. 
And so little six-year-old Mary asked the other students in her class, how many of you love God? And one by one, they began chiming in, I do, I do, I do. One little boy shouted, well, you all may love God, but I love Jesus. But I thought he died, Mary answered. That's true, the boy replied, but every Easter he comes roaring back to life. (laughs) Now, it is funny, is it not? It is funny that Jesus remains dead all year around for some people. And maybe one day a year or one experience causes him to come roaring back to life for many. It is funny how a mere one week after the greatest event that the world had ever experienced, the celebration fades into the background, the excitement wanes, and depression sets in. It is funny how you and I chase after one more high, even if it means that it takes us back in the very same place where God delivered us from when we started to follow him. It is also funny how scripture has a way of dealing in trilogies. So Noah had three sons, Abraham had his three angel visitors, Daniel's three Hebrew friends, Noah's three days in the belly of a whale, God's three calls to Samuel before he finally recognized that God was calling him, Peter's three denials of Jesus, Jesus' three days in the grave before his resurrection, Paul's three questions or three requests of God to remove his thorn in the flesh. And in today's text, John 21, which we'll be reading in a bit, Jesus asking Peter the same question three times. Do you love me? The scripture is on the screen. I'm going to have you stand for the reading of it. I am actually going to read the first slide, you the second slide, and we'll alternate until we get to the end of the passage uh, in verse, in verse uh, 17. Would you please stand with me? Is it back there? Yes, it is. Am I in the way? I probably am. I'm going to stand on the side. Am I on here? Am I projecting? Can you all see? All right. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was tripped over, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out of the land, they saw a charcoal fire in the place, which had been 
This passage teaches us one thing. It is this. Jesus will not settle for your head. He is really after your heart. Let me say that again. Jesus will not settle for your head. He is after your heart. Your profession does not mean anything to Jesus at all. It is your devotion or your passion or your commitment to him that he's after. Jesus is not nearly as interested in your history, in terms of where you've been or what you've done, as he is in your present, where you are right now, where your heart is. And so it's one week after Easter, and Peter and his other apostles, his other disciples, they're right back where they were when they first met Jesus or when Jesus first met them. They're hanging out at the beach, if you will. They're back to the familiar. Peter says to them, I'm going back to my past. I'm going back to what I'm familiar with. I'm going back to what I've been accustomed to. I'm going back to my past. And they all agree with him that they're going to do the same thing. Isn't it remarkable? Isn't it remarkable how one statement can so easily influence the people around you to think the wrong idea, to feel the wrong emotion, and to do the same thing? One statement. One statement affects the trajectory of their lives. I'm going back to the familiar. Now think back, if you could, to the biggest failure of your life, and we all have had them. Maybe the night that you carelessly gave away your purity. Maybe it was your first taste of alcohol or drugs that set you on a downward spiral, and you have not even been able to recover from that. Maybe it was a marital indiscretion that broke up your marriage and brought pain and divorce. 
Maybe it was the lie that you told that cost you your job. We have all had them. Failures. And imagine that after the biggest failure of your life, that Jesus comes to you not with words of condemnation, not with words like, how could you have done something so foolish? But he comes to you with words that offer restoration and hope. The question he asks as he comes to you is this, do you love me? Do you love me? It is a question that we did not anticipate. You see, we anticipated rebuke and condemnation and judgment. And he comes, do you love me? This is not a question for the head. It is one for the heart. Now, Joe Stoyle in his book, Fan the Flame, describes the heart this way. I quote him, it is the authentic person, the part of our being where we desire, deliberate, and decide. The place of conscious and decisive spiritual activity. A person as a whole, including his feelings, his desires, his passions, his thought, his understanding and will. It is the center of a person. It is the place to which God turns. End of quote. Ruth Barton describes the heart as the you that exists beyond any role that you play, any job you perform, any relationship that defines you. Any notoriety or success that you may have achieved along the way. It is a part of you that longs for more of God than you have right now. The part that may even now be aware of missing God amid the challenges of life. That is the heart. That is what God is really after. And so Jesus' question, do you love me, is the same as him asking you, where is your heart right now? Where is it? Where are your feelings and your passions right now? Are you feeling the love that I so eloquently displayed when I hung on the cross? The love that I displayed for you. Are you feeling that? Are you drowning in the guilt of the biggest mistake of your past? Has your love for things, the things that I blessed you with, have these things somehow drowned out your affection for me? Where is your heart? And so these are questions, not just for Peter 2,000 years ago as he was hanging out on a beach. These are questions for the people of Brown's Chapel 2,000 years later. Do you love me? Jesus asks of you. So he's not after your head. He's really after your heart. Here's our second point. Jesus is more interested in your present than he is in your past. And so we're going to play a little game right now, if we may. How many of you guys love to play games in church? I'm watching the two of you, buddy. <laughs> Tanner and um, his brother, uh, we have a little thing going. They know that I'm watching them this morning. <laughs> All right, so this is our game. I am actually going to share with you some lyrics to an old song, and you get to decide or you get to guess the name or the title of this song, all right? Very simple instructions. Can you play that game with me? All right. So, and let me add that the winner of this game, whoever gets the, 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 the title of the song correctly, you get to be first in line at the taco thing that we do right afterwards. <laughs> How about that? All right. So here are the lyrics. 
He knows dirty secrets that I keep. Does he know it's killing me? Does he know? Does he know another's hands have touched my skin? I won't tell him where I've been. He knows. He knows. He knows. It's tearing me apart. She's slipping away. And I'm, am I just hanging on to all the words she used to say? The pictures on her phone. She's not coming home. I'm not coming home. I know what you did last summer. Just lied to me. There's no other. I know what you did last summer. Tell me where you've been. I know what you did last summer. Look me in the eyes, my lover. I know what you did last summer. Tell me where you've been. I know, I know, I know. Wow, awesome. Awesome. So you get to be first in line today at the Takasal Bar. But you know, the interesting thing that this song brings to mind is that Jesus is not just, he's not some jealous lover holding on to your past as leverage over you. He knows the struggle of your soul and it is that struggle in your soul that he really cares about. The struggle between your past and your present. He knows that a part of you remembers the shame of the biggest mistake of your life. But he also knows that another part of you wants to believe that he can forgive the biggest failure of your life. He understands that struggle. He knows that you're tempted to go back to what you left behind when you chose to follow Jesus. But here's the thing. Going back to the life that you already left means refusing to go after the life that Jesus is offering you in the present. And what you really need to understand is this. If you've really experienced the joy and the freedom and the blessing and the forgiveness and the relationship that God offers you, if you've already been enjoying that, you don't really want to go back to what enslaved you. You don't really go back to what you left without feeling some degree of misery over having gone back. Whenever the future that Jesus offers become less appealing than the past that Satan once offered, what results is emptiness and frustration. What results is throwing out your net night after night after night, hoping to catch something but then pulling it up every time, realizing that you've just drawn in emptiness. Ironically, Peter, who is going to be writing several decades after this experience that we just read about in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, he's going to share something with us that I believe that Peter learned from his own past experience. And I want you, especially the young people, to notice these two very gross images that Peter alludes to in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Peter writes this, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. In other words, if you having experienced deliverance and freedom and joy and blessing, if you go back to what you left, 
He's saying that the last, your last state becomes worse than your first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the proverb says has happened to them, and these are the two images I want you young people to think about. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow or pig, after washing herself, returns to wallowing in the mire. Does that gross you out at all? It should. That Those two metaphors capture for us what it is like when we go back to what we left in order to follow Jesus. We should always keep these two present in our minds because when we indeed fall back into that trap, the Bible says that the last state becomes worse for us than the beginning. Tom Landry uh, described the emptiness in the locker room this way after the Dallas Cowboys had won the Super Bowl. I quote him, The overwhelming emotion among the players was how empty that goal was. And he ends by saying this, There must be something more. What we are lacking when we do that is Jesus Christ himself who is the one who satisfies every desire of your heart. Here's our third point. Jesus wants you to trust his heart for you rather than your heart for him. No matter how much you think you love him, don't rely on your love for Jesus. Rely on his love for you. And so what we find happening in our text is that after the hard night of frustration, after they'd spent an entire night trying to catch some fish and drawing up their nets empty every time, Jesus comes to his disciples. And I want you to notice what he calls them as he comes to them. Notice that they have deserted. They've gone back. But notice what Jesus calls them as he meets them. Because you see, what he calls them is more reflective of his heart for them than their heart for him. He calls them friends. You see, even when your heart has left him, even when your wrong choices grieve him, even after your biggest failure of your life hurts him, even after you end up doing the very thing that you swore that you would never do, Still Jesus comes after you, and what he calls you is friend. He calls you friend. He calls you friend to let you know that his heart for you has not changed for you, even though your heart may have changed toward him. He calls you friend to allow you a second chance, indeed another chance, to make things right. Restoration is what Jesus has in mind as he comes to you. Not condemnation restoration. He wants to restore you to that relationship that you may have left. And so his question to you as he comes is more of a statement of fact than a question. He asks, do you have any fish? And he knows they have no fish. He knows that. It is him really saying to you, I know you have no fish in your nets, but I will give you fullness instead of your emptiness, if you decide to do things my way. You have decided to do things your way by going back. But if you decide to do things my way, I am going to reward you with fullness for your emptiness. And so when the disciples obey him by throwing their nets over on the other side of the boat, they draw in so much, so many fish that in fact the nets broke. In fact, we're told that there were 153 fish. 
What this teaches us is this. When you do things your way, you end up with a hard night having caught nothing. Time after time after time. When you do things God's way, he blesses you with provision too numerous and too much for you to actually be able to fathom. But notice that he not only allows them to catch this large number of fish, but notice the great invitation that he get, that he gives to them. This is the invitation of a lifetime. It is the invitation to the greatest fish fry breakfast the world has ever seen. And it is actually on the beach. You can't beat that. You can't top that. He says to them, come and have breakfast with me. First calls them friends. Then he says, come and have breakfast with me. Because God is, Jesus is after relationship. Relationship. He doesn't need their fish. What he needs is their heart. He wants them to trust his heart for them. He's calling them to relationship. Real relationship with the one who loves them more than they would in fact ever know. Now here's how the Apostle Paul describes the heart of Jesus towards those who are his children. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 17 through 19. It is really a prayer. Paul is praying this for the uh, Ephesian believers. He's praying that they would really in some way be able to grasp, maybe even understand the love that Jesus has for them. And so Paul prays this. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? And yet Jesus is, invites us into such a love which you can't plumb the depths of and you can't scale the heights of. You can literally drown in such love and not exhaust it. That is what Jesus is calling us to. His heart for us, not necessarily our heart for him. Here's our final point. Jesus wants your deepest affection. And so in the middle of their breakfast on the beach, Jesus turns to Peter and he asks him, Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now what does he mean by more than these? We don't know for sure. There are three possibilities, I think. First of which is this. Do you love me more than these other disciples love me? You see, Peter wasn't the only one who swore that he would never deny Jesus. They all did. They all said we would never deny you. Peter was, in fact, the one who boasted that he would not. In fact, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 35, um, we're told this. Peter said to him, meaning Jesus, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. So they all were guilty of denying and forsaking Jesus. Jesus is asking Peter, do you, do you love me more than these disciples, these other disciples love me? They, prof they professed the same thing, but they all denied me as you did. Here's the second possibility. Do you love me than you love, I'm sorry, do you love me more than you love these men? Because Peter had an affection for them. They, they had an affinity for one another. They were all disciples. Jesus wants to find out, do you love, is your love for me stronger than your love and your affection for these men who are with you? 
Here's a third possibility. Do you love me more than you love these stuff? The fish, the nets, the boat, the sea, the lifestyle of fishing. To be asked this personal question, and, and I'm sure that some of you don't like to be asked personal questions. This is, a, this is a personal question that Jesus asked. But to be asked a personal question once is okay, right? To be asked twice, maybe you can allow that. But three times, that's a bit much. Not many of us can tolerate that. It goes beyond our comfort level. Notice how Peter answers Jesus. It's the same question asked maybe a different way, but Peter answers, both his first and his second answer are the same. And what we notice by these answers is that both of them lack any conviction. It, it, the answers just come from his head, really. He hasn't thought about it. He hasn't reflected on it. It's the first thing that comes to his mind, and we all know that Peter was very impulsive. Both answers to this question lack conviction. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So it comes from the head and not from the heart. But notice that Jesus doesn't settle for that answer that comes from the head. He wants something else. And so he asks Peter the same question a third time. Now, some theologians think that the reason that he asks Peter three times is that he wants to give him the same number of opportunities to confess him as Lord as he had had to deny him. But you and I can't fully appreciate and understand what is really going on here in this conversation between Peter and Jesus unless you actually look at the Greek. So when Jesus asks Peter, do you love me more than these? He uses the same word that describes the love that you reserve for God. And to each of these um, questions, Peter responds by saying, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, meaning you know that I have great affection for you. But the third time in this conversation, what Jesus does is that he switches words on Peter. He asks him, do you really have great affection for me, Peter? And Peter becomes offended by the question. He becomes offended because he knows that Jesus has switched words on him, and he knows exactly what Jesus means by the question. So this question evokes in Peter a very painful memory. He remembers what he did. He remembers his three denials of Jesus. He, he knows that there is a gap between what he's saying with his mouth and what he has just done in terms of denying Jesus three times. And he is stung by the guilt of what he's done. And so he says, in the midst of his guilt, he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you, and you know that I have great affection for you. And Jesus knows that this answer comes from a different place than the two previous answers. It's not from his head this time, it's from his heart. It is not merely a profession this time. It is really a statement of conviction. And so each time Jesus says to him, either take care of my sheep or tend my sheep. And so we all know this morning that it's not just because you say that you love Jesus that you really love him. Jesus is saying to Peter, your commitment to me is what says to me that you love me, not your profession. 
The proof of your love for your spouse is that you care for her. The proof of your love for your family is that you protect them, you provide for them, you're committed to them. The proof of your love for me, Peter, is that you care for my sheep, you love my church. You care for my church, you attend it, you participate in it, you tithe to it, you pray for it, you volunteer in it, you do whatever is necessary to ensure that it thrives. You endure hardship even when that is required. You love my people even when loving hurts. Because you see, whatever hurt you experience can never compare to the hurt that you caused Jesus when he hung on the cross on your place, in your place. I'm told that a woman was trying very desperately to uh, get her husband to be freed because of a crime that he was arrested for that he didn't commit. And so he was facing execution, and she came up with this brilliant idea of posting an ad in the paper because she didn't have the money that was required to hire these expensive uh, defense attorneys. And so he puts this ad, she puts this ad in the paper, and she says this, I will offer my services for 10 years as a cook, a maid, a housekeeper to any attorney who will defend him and bring about his vindication. That's the desperate situation she was in. You don't need an attorney to get you off the hook. Jesus has already been that attorney. He's already gotten you off the hook. But your love for him is never greater than your love for his church, for his people. What does caring for God's church look like? An anonymous source says this as I wind this down. It is silence when your words would hurt. And very many of us are so quick with the mouth. We're very quick on the draw. Sometimes it is silence because our words would hurt. It is patience when your neighbors curt. It is deafness when a scandal flows. So you don't weigh in on the gossip. You, you, you kill it in its tracks, so to speak. It is thoughtfulness for others' woes. It is promptness when stern duty calls. It is courage when misfortune falls. This is how you prove your love for God's church. Do you really love Jesus? If you really love Jesus, let his third question to Peter offend you just as it did Peter. Let it offend you. And if you love him, this is the first thing I'm going to challenge you to do. Go and care for his sheep. Now you can look at that in several ways. You can look at his sheep here at Brown's Chapel. This is a specific local body and a specific flock of which you are a part. Go and care for that. Care for one another. Again, I really love the analogy of you considering yourselves to be family. And by all accounts, it seems you're doing a very good job at that. Continue to love one another as you're doing and to care for one another. But I also want you to do this. I want you to go away and think of three people that you have not seen in church for a long time. Three names. You may even go ahead and write those on your um, sermon notes or whatever on your sheet. Three names of people that you have not seen in church for a while. And when you go home, give them a call and tell them that you really miss them from church. That's all. Just tell them that you miss them. That's the first thing that you're going to do. Secondly, I want to challenge you to serve him, meaning serve Jesus, by using your gifts to build up 
this body, to serve this flock. I know that a congregation this size has many gifts. You're, you're very talented. The young are talented, the old are talented. The males are talented, the females are talented. The children are talented. Don't sit on your gift. The body of Christ needs it. It helps to serve the body and build it up. So use your gifts, whatever they are, whether in music, in kids' ministry, in coffee ministry, in teaching a Sunday school class, in doing outreach, whatever your gifts are, use them to build this body up. Thirdly, I want to challenge you to be true to Jesus. Don't just say you love him. Really love him. Cultivate your love for him by staying in relationship with him. Now it is true that it is not your efforts that really keep you connected to Christ at all. It is a partnership between you and Christ. He does some things as you do some things. As you submit to his leadership, as you stay in the word, as you stay in prayer, as you stay um, connected to him, he is doing a work of transformation, continuing transformation in you. As you don't neglect or forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Paul, I mean, the, the writer of Hebrews says that we should not do that. But as we are continuing to assemble ourselves, we're being built up as a body of Christ. We're being able to nourish one another in so doing. So be true to him. Stay true to him. Regardless of what the future holds and what the changes are, stay true and be faithful. Here's a final application point. Follow him. There are many voices out there. There are many things that are calling for your attention. There are many avenues that you can pursue. Choose to follow him. Follow him as your shepherd because he is leading you. He is guiding and, and, and directing you. He is committed to you as his sheep. So follow him as, you, as, as your shepherd, but also follow him and follow his example as a sacrificial lamb. Because notice what he did. He offered his life. He laid it down for his brethren. And he calls us as well to lay down our lives for one another. And as you follow him this way, you're going to recognize that his plans for you are greater than any plans you could come up with on your own. So do you love me? Jesus asks. If you love me, take care of my sheep. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we are truly overwhelmed by your love for us. We can only gaze on the cross and be overwhelmed by the love that was displayed as Jesus hung there, sinless, yet taking our sins upon himself and nailing them to his cross with him. God, we thank you this morning for such love. And God, this love calls from us this morning our love. God, maybe for some of us, we have only been blending in. Maybe for some of us, we've only been professing. Maybe for some of us, our love has grown cold. Maybe for some of us, we have never really entered into that love relationship with you. It is only the Holy Spirit who can take these different experiences and use this moment to really bring them home for us. 
And so we ask this morning that in these moments, in these few moments before we leave this place, that the Holy Spirit would be faithful in really dealing with our hearts and accomplishing in our hearts the very purpose, the very thing that he desires of us this morning. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you. Have a great day.